Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are the risen king. You came to this earth and you defeated sin and evil and death. You're victorious. You're reigning even now. Lord, we look at the world around us, though, and we see all kinds of challenges. This should not surprise us because even though you came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly, Jesus, you also said in this world you will have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. So, Jesus, we praise you because you are victorious. And we thank you because you passed that victory over sin and evil and death onto us as we trust in you. And I pray that today as we open the scripture, that you will open our eyes and our hearts in fresh ways to how we can apply that victory that you won to our lives so that we can live victorious lives over sin, evil, and death as well. And we pray that the result of these things, as we apply them through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we will grow in our love for you and our faithfulness to you and that you will glorify yourself by making yourself known through us to the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we had a tremendous celebration at the baptism picnic. Five people were baptized from Freedens, and it was really a huge encouragement to hear the accounts of God's work in each of their lives. Baptism celebrates the truth that we just sang, that through Jesus we can come awake and rise up from the grave into new life. Now, as I look at this picture of those who are baptized, and as I was thinking just about all of us who are seeking to follow Jesus, I can't help but think about how it is so exciting when someone is following Jesus, when someone makes that choice and that commitment to him. Yet, at the same time, even though it might be exciting and might be joy-filled to start that relationship with God and start following Jesus, finishing strong is not nearly as easy. I think over my 20 years of following Jesus, I think over my 13 years in vocational ministry, how many people I have seen who have even been pictured just like that, being baptized with such joy and excitement. How many people have been excited to follow Jesus, and they're growing, they're, they think they're committed to him, yet over time, for one reason or another, they fall away from Jesus. I've seen it far too many times. It's easy to start well. But finishing well is much more challenging. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is going to offer us some sobering truths, but also some practical insights about how we can stay faithful to following Jesus throughout our lives. If you receive this morning an ESV student study Bible, you can follow right along. Ephesians chapter 6 that we're studying is on page 1575 of your ESV Student Study Bible, page 1575. And follow along in your Bible is a great way just to internalize the truths of God's Word. Now, Ephesians started as a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in the city of Ephesus. And this book of Ephesians can serve for us as a tremendous orientation manual for how to live the Christian life and really what Christianity is all about. In this series, as we've studied Ephesians, we've dug deeply into the glorious truths of the gospel, of the good news that through Jesus we can be fully reconciled with God and brought into his family as his sons and his daughters. We have celebrated that truth. And also through the book of Ephesians, we have seen a lot of practical teaching about how we can live in the way that God designed us to live. But today we're coming near the end of this letter to the Ephesians. And near the end, Paul is getting really serious about the trials that we may face. How it is not easy 
to finish strong in the race of faith. So we're going to look here at this passage together. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Ephesians chapter 6, picking up in verse 10. We're just going to read a couple verses to get us started. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this passage starts out by calling us to be spiritually strong by relying on God's strength. Not on our own strength, on God's strength. I mean, listen again to verse 10, this focus on God's strength. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So an important question for us to understand is why do we need God's strength as we we are going through this life? And the reason is that we are in a battle that is more than we can handle. We are in a battle that is more than we can handle. That spiritual forces of evil are working to take us down. Let me ask you a few questions. Just think about this in your mind. Why don't you post your social security number all over the internet? When you go to Walmart, why don't you leave the the keys in the ignition of your car when you go inside? When you're at work, why don't you leave a nice thick pile of cash sitting on your desk? Or if you're raising children or grandchildren or just working with children, why don't you tell them, hey, if a stranger comes and asks you to get into his or her car, just jump right in. Why don't we do those types of things? The reason is that we know that there are people out there who will take advantage of us in those situations. That we need to be on our guard against people who have malicious intent. Yeah, I think about this, about how, you know, people, Christians, would just know that, they, yeah, you don't post your social security number out there just for anyone to see. You need to protect your family. You need to protect your money. Yet these very same people, these very same Christians, just are oblivious to the fact that there is a spiritual battle all around us, spiritual dangers, that we have a spiritual enemy who is trying actively to pull us away from God. I mean, people focus on their careers, they focus on their schoolwork, they focus on their hobbies and their family. But they don't recognize or they don't think about the fact that we have a spiritual enemy. One of the things we see in this passage is that Satan leads his evil empire against us. Look with me to verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now let's talk about Satan for a minute. In verse 11, he's referred to as the devil. Satan is real. He started as an angel, as a good angel, but then he rebelled against God and led about a third of the angels in that rebellion. So Satan is real. The other truth that we need to know about Satan is that he is evil. Pastor Kent Hughes has said it very well when he says that Satan has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, no morals. He feeds on pain and anguish and filth. 
And here in verse 12, we see that Satan has a whole army of demons. Demons um, are, are angels who've gotten to the dark side who are working against us and against God's purposes in this world. Yet, like I said, many people are oblivious to this fact. We go through our lives and recognize, yeah, we have challenges. But it's so easy just to be oblivious to the fact that there are spiritual forces of darkness actively working against us and against our relationship with God. One of the reasons is, as it says here, your, your battle is not against flesh and blood. Satan and his demons, they, they cannot be perceived with our five senses. A doctor's office cannot ascertain whether they are influencing you. You cannot measure them in a laboratory. But they are just as real as you and I are. They are just as real as God is. But they are spiritual beings. So we cannot perceive them with our normal senses. But that does not mean that they are not still working all around us. It says here that they are scheming against us. I mean, verse 11 says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I think that word schemes is helpful to understand what's going on here. Let's talk for a minute about the Green Bay Packers. They start playing the regular season in two weeks. I know many of you are excited about this. What do coaches of the Green Bay Packers do during the week, during the season? I mean, they, do they just have the players run through a few drills just to keep the players in shape? No. They are doing far more than that. They are scheming. They are studying their opponent who's coming up, studying where the weaknesses of this opponent. And how can we play those weaknesses? How can we take advantage of those weaknesses to give us an advantage and defeat the opponent? It's literally called scheming. They are installing a scheme, a game plan for how to defeat the opponent. And it says here that the devil and his forces of evil are scheming against us. That they are analyzing us. They are developing a game plan for how to take us down. How to pull us away from God. So, so Satan and his, his evil ones are scheming against us. They are working to tear down what God is seeking to build. Let's just walk through Ephesians real quick to see some of the things that the forces of darkness may be trying to do. In Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, we saw that, that God has made a way through Jesus for us to be saved by grace through faith. How will Satan respond to that? Well, he will seek to twist people's understanding of God. Maybe even making people think, well, God doesn't even exist. Why do you care about him? Or, or if people think that God does exist, try to twist things and make people think, you know what? You are saved by your good works. So keep working harder and harder and harder. Yeah, stay busy in those religious activities. You better, or else you're going to hell. That's what, that's what the forces of darkness will make us think. Try to twist people's view of grace and faith. Ephesians 2 we saw that God, through Jesus, has broken down the walls that previously have divided races and ethnicities and cultures. So what will the forces of darkness try to do? Try to build those walls back up. Rebuild racial animosity. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, we saw that God is seeking to work through the church to represent him to the world around us. So what will the forces of darkness try to do? They will try to tear down. The church, make the church unfruitful, corrupt the church from the inside out. Ephesians 4, God calls his people to unity. So then what will Satan and the forces of darkness try to do then? They will sow seeds of discord and selfishness and anger among God's people to try to break us down from the inside out. Ephesians 5, we saw that God calls us as to holiness and to purity. 
So what will the forces of hell try to do? They'll try to tempt Christians into sin. And the forces of darkness, we have to understand, are very powerful. I mean, just look in this passage at the descriptors of the forces of darkness. How, how it describes them as rulers, as authorities, as cosmic powers, as spiritual forces. They are far more powerful than we are. Yet we have to understand that their scheming oftentimes is very subtle. Because if someone comes to attack you directly and you can see that attack coming, oh, you're probably going to try to resist it. I mean, if someone tells you, hey, 11 o'clock tonight, I'm going to break into your house. Are you not going to be ready for that break-in? No, the thief will try to come at a time that you are not expecting. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan um, roams around um, as, as he, he masquerades as an angel of light. He masquerades as an angel of light. I mean, evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its purpose. But the way that temptation and sin gets into our life is that it comes in masquerades as something good, as something attractive, as something that's appropriate for us to feel or to experience. I think of just various examples. I think of how, you know, demonic schemes may masquerade as an attractive woman at work who starts out as a friend, but then comes the affair that destroys so many people's lives. Demonic schemes may masquerade as a new hobby or a new lake home, which at first is so fun, but then over time pulls you away from your church family and ultimately pulls you away from God. Demonic schemes may masquerade as a righteous grievance, that someone has wronged you and you, you are right to feel wronged, but then Satan will twist that to poison you with toxic bitterness. Or demonic schemes may masquerade as a beer, to help you relax after a long day of work. But then, demonic schemes begin to twist that, turn it into an addiction or into a drunk driving accident. I mean, the list could go on and on. I mean, it's nearly infinite. But these are all things, note, that, that are good in and of themselves. But that's how Satan gets them into our lives. They are good. It's kind of a bait and switch that they are masked. They're camouflaged. And then he twists them to pull us away God. I think about all the great opportunities we have in today's society. But great opportunities oftentimes lead to great busyness. And it's been said many times that if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. And I think, you know, busyness is undermining so many people's relationship with God. People just get so busy and you get pulled away from a church family. You get pulled away from opportunities for mutual discipleship. You get pulled away in your own heart from God. Why? Not because you deliberately turned against God, but because you just don't have time for him anymore. Your heart is pulled in other directions. If the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. He is scheming against us. We have to understand that we need God's strength to succeed in this battle. If we depend on our own strength, we will be defeated. Because Satan and the forces of darkness are so much stronger than we are in and of ourselves. And, and realistically, they, they will keep coming at us. Especially if we depend on our own strength. They will outwit us. And they are not in a hurry to take us down. They may be sowing seeds. that if we don't address those, if we just keep depending on ourselves, they will eventually take us down. So we need to be depending on God's strength. So the question is how? 
How do we depend on God's strength in the midst of the spiritual battle? And what we see here in this passage is called the armor of God. I invite you to turn back in your Bibles with me, picking up in verse 13. I'm going to read the rest of our passage. Paul says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, Paul writes, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what we see here is how we tap into God's strength is by putting on the armor that God provides. When you go into battle, it's important that you wear the right gear. I mean, I would not want to see someone going into battle wearing something that looks like this. I mean, there's an appropriate time to wear any of this attire, but not when you're going in a battle. Back in, in the Roman Empire, soldiers looked more like this. They had armor on. They were ready for that battle. They were prepared. And Paul, recognizing that we are in a spiritual battle, he uses the analogy of a soldier and the armor, the protection, the weapons that a soldier uses. He uses these as a metaphor to describe how we can win the battles in our lives, spiritually speaking. And this, this metaphor would have made a lot of sense back then. Because everyone in the Roman Empire, where Paul is, where the Ephesians are, would have been well acquainted with Roman soldiers. I mean, Paul himself, he was in prison and guarded by Roman soldiers. I mean, it says at the end of our passage, he was an ambassador in chains. It's talking about he is in prison because of his faith in Christ. So Paul goes through the various parts of the apparel and the, the armor and the, the weapons of the soldier and likens them what we need to do if we want to win the spiritual battle. He, he lists six different aspects of the armor of God. First of all, we see in verse 14 that we need to fasten the belt of truth. Now, for a Roman soldier, the belt was important. I mean, for us, we, we may not think about its importance unless our pants are falling down. But, uh, you know, the belt was important back then. The belt, for one, it held, it held a tunic. A tunic was kind of like a dress or a skirt that they would wear, even the men. But you don't want that thing flying up. You don't want that thing getting tangled in your legs. So the belt helped keep it in place. And the belt also made sure the breastplate that was covering your chest stayed where it needed to. And the belt held the sheath for your sword. So the belt basically made sure that everything on your outfit and your armor was staying together where it needed to stay. And applying this idea of the belt of truth to our lives, we see that we need to base our life on God's truth. We need to base our life on God's truth. If we want to stay faithful to God throughout our lives, it's important that we know what we believe about God in the Bible and why we believe it. A primary reason why a lot of people, including young people, as we talked about earlier for the upcoming class, fall away from God is that they don't have a solid sense of what is true 
Their, their, their faith may be based on emotions or based on tradition, but we need to have a deeper foundation than that. We need a foundation of truth. So it's important to know what we believe and why we believe it. And that will help serve as a belt that holds every other aspect of our life together in unity. Verse 14 also says, not only fasten the belt of truth, but, but put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, a breastplate back then would be a piece of armor that would cover your whole chest area to protect your vital organs. And this breastplate of righteousness that Paul is referring to is basically saying to define your worth with God's righteousness. Righteousness refers to our right standing with God. It's only available through what Christ has done for us and us receiving that gift by faith. And when we receive God's righteousness, it's his stamp of approval. That we don't have to worry about, do people approve of us? Are we popular? No, our worth, when we are depending on God's righteousness, comes from God. But so many people get derailed in their life and in their walk with God because they are looking to so many other things for their sense of worth. But if we have our sense of worth in God and in his righteousness, it gives us a firm foundation that protects our heart. If our identity is in Christ, it protects our heart, just like a breastplate and the armor would protect the literal heart of a soldier. I think of Romans chapter 8 that says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are a part of what is ours through the righteousness of God. And if we hold on to that, make that our identity, find our worth in that, it helps us to persevere for the long haul in our relationship with God. Now let's move on now to verse 15. It talks about the next part, the third part of the armor of God. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now shoes as part of the soldier's uh, equipment, back then they were like leather, thick leather sandals that provided some protection for the feet, but also agility in battle. And for us, it says that the shoes that we need are fitted with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And there's a lot that could be said about this, but I want to focus in on this idea of the good news of peace that Jesus makes available for us. The beauty of what Jesus did for us is that it reconciles us with God, giving us peace with God, and also the gospel recon can reconcile us with people around us, giving us peace with others, which is so valuable in a world that has so much animosity. We are told that we are to forgive others just as God through Christ forgave us. But one of the things, one of the schemes that the forces of darkness use to pull people away from God and pull people away from church is unresolved anger, unresolved pain and hurt. And so what we see here is that we need the shoes fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That we need to be peacemakers, not grudge holders. Back in Ephesians 4, Paul addresses this specifically. Verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Do you hear this connection between unresolved anger and a foothold for the devil? That's part of his scheme. If he can make people angry, it creates divisions. It pulls people away from one another and away from God. So part of this armor of God, of helping us to, to follow God long term, is to be a peacemaker and not a grudge holder. And this is possible through the gospel. 
Now moving on this passage to verse 16. We see, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Back then, Roman shields, as you see in the picture, were large. They were large to protect the soldier, and they could be soaked in water to extinguish flaming arrows that were shot at them. And part of the schemes of the forces of darkness is to shoot metaphorical flaming arrows at us. We see Jesus, John chapter 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. That Satan lies to us. And that's part of his flaming arrows that he shoots at us, at us, causing us to doubt God, causing us to doubt who God has made us to be, causing us to, to believe lies about this world. And so the shield is a call to trust God's goodness and faithfulness. It's a shield of faith. Faith is about trusting God. That even when life is hard, even when circumstances are going against us, that we say, God, I'm going to trust you. And, and, you know, God, I may not understand exactly what's happening here, but I still know you are faithful and you are good. That is what we gain from the shield of faith. And that helps to undermine the anxiety and, and the fears and the doubts that can pull people away from God. Now, two more parts of the armor of God. One is the helmet. Verse 17 says, take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet, obviously, was to protect the head. And this helmet of salvation is talking about rejoice in your salvation that's available to you through Christ. There are a lot of discouragements that can pull Christians away from God. But salvation is always something that we can rejoice in regardless of our other circumstances. That we can see the greatness of Christ. That we we can rejoice that no matter how hard this world is, Jesus has overcome the world and shares his victory with us. That joy of our salvation can be like a helmet that protects us in the midst of battle. And finally, Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Scripture. And so part of taking up um, the sword is to cherish internalized Scripture. Read it. Cherish it. I mean, if you have someone who's regularly reading Scripture, if they really, truly value what God is saying to them through His Word, and if they are seeking to apply it in their lives, it's almost a guarantee they're going to follow through and follow in Christ throughout their lives. But it's when we begin to let go of this weapon that God has given us, when we begin to downplay the importance of Scripture in our lives, when we begin just to neglect it, that is part of the road toward walking away from God. Now, going back to the beginning of this passage, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Through the book of Ephesians, he has shared a lot of great insights, a lot of great truths that can transform our lives and glorify God. But he recognizes that it doesn't take much for all that good to be undone. Because we are in a battle that can so easily pull us away from God. Now in battle, I hope you recognize that here in this passage, the attitude that's pervading this passage is not one of fear. It's one of a humble confidence. It needs to be humble because we are all still vulnerable. But there can be confidence that comes through Jesus. Because Jesus has already defeated sin and evil and death. We saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's praying for the Ephesians. And he says in verse 19, he prays that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. 
So Jesus, he's already defeated sin, evil, and death. Satan ultimately has been defeated, but he is still active for the time being, scheming against us. So we need to be on our guard. We need to be humble and recognize we are vulnerable still, but we can cling to the victory that Jesus has won. I mean, it's called the armor of God here because it's, it's provision that comes from God to strengthen us. It's from God, but we have a responsibility to put it on. Now, I want to close just with a question. What does it mean, or what does it look like to win the spiritual battle? I mean, the title of the series is winning, or the title of the sermon is winning the spiritual battle. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, winning the spiritual battle is all about faithfulness. Yes, we may have setbacks along the way. Yes, there may be times when sin or temptation gets the best of us. But, but winning means, you know what? We get back up. We receive God's grace and forgiveness. And through God's strength, we press on. I think of the Apostle Paul. He wrote these words at the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. That is what it looks like to win the spiritual battle. Faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you won the battle and that you share that victory with us. Yet at the same time, we recognize that we live in this world that presents many challenges that will pull us away from you. Uh, there is a spiritual battle. And Lord, I pray that you will keep us cognizant of that spiritual battle that is waging war around us. That we will recognize when there are temptations, when there are, 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 is a bait and switch going on that may look good, but ultimately it will pull us away from God. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to put on that full armor of God so that we will not fall away, but that we will follow you faithfully and at the end of our lives be able to say along with Paul, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, I've fought the good fight. Lord, we pray these things for your glory. Amen. Will you stand?